Please. During this time, I mean, Rick was also um, perfecting his stage show, right? And uh, we kind of skipped over it, but how did he get the Stone City band guys together? Were they old friends, or what, what was that situation? Well, uh, the only one that was a friend growing up, not uh, well, at a particular age, was, was Levi and, uh, and Billy Nunn, uh, those two. I mean, and Rick knew them basically when we moved from the projects out to Cold Spring. So, I mean, he met them when he was about 14, 15. They, they weren't what, what I would consider um, uh, childhood friends. They were friends from eighth grade, uh, one year at high school. And Rick only went to high school two years and was out of here, you know. Um, so uh, I think that... Um, uh, uh, the first group was um, a number of a number of guys, white guys, Mike Caputi, uh, uh, Alan Sims, um, and a few other guys. I mean, just he got for the for the sound. And then he went around looking for people. And it just happened, you know, Levi was one of the guys who um, that he knew from growing up, from about fourteen to fifteen. And Levi was doing a lot of singing, so. He got Levi, and Levi directed them to get other people, and that's how it, that's how it went, basically. And you knew Levi as well? Eddie? Oh, yeah, we went to grammar school together and high school for yeah. a year. He, he seems a little, at least now, what I know of him, he seems a little irascible. He's kind of a character. Was he always that way? Yeah, Levi was always a bully type. You know, he was always, um, you know, uh, bigger than a lot of us when we were small, when we were young. Um, you know, I mean, Levi was Levi as far as I was concerned. You know, I didn't spend a lot of time with them. I, you know, I played baseball against them when I was young. We lived in the same neighborhood. That's about it. You know, then we went to, uh, we were at Hutch Tech High School together for a year. Um, but Rick wasn't there. Rick was at, uh, at Bennett, I think, or Bennett uh, East or Grover, wherever he went. Uh, Leroy, when when did you first see uh, Rick perform as the Rick James in the Stone City Band? I'm sure it was before you went to work with him, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I would come out on the road and see him play, you know, and then I mean, D.C. was the main market. When he came to D.C., I saw him perform in D.C. Uh, his first year. And, you know, I went to some other other venues where he played, Buffalo. 
Um, so, I mean, I saw him, but, it, you know, I'm seeing the same person that I, I saw in Toronto, you know, and, uh, uh, in L.A. perform. So, before there was any band. So, and, uh, I'm seeing that same person. Did so it seem like he turned it up a couple notches or? Uh, yes, of course. I mean, he got better and better and better and more confident. Um, knew exactly what he wanted. He always knew what he wanted. So, I mean, it, it wasn't a surprise to me. Uh, and, uh, it wasn't a surprise that when opportunity came, he was prepared. <laughs> that was not a surprise. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the situation around when you came into uh, managing with him. I know that, you know, I mentioned the Garden of Love came out in 80. It was a mellow thing. I guess he went off to the islands or something, and he did a, a more mellow record. And then I think... Um, Street Songs was either, was that 81 or 82? Uh, 81 was Street Songs. 81, but it came, the tour was 82. Yeah, so, but, 80. but that obviously completely, I mean, lifted him to a whole new stratosphere. Um, yeah. Where did you come in during 81? What was the sequence of events? Well, um, it, was, it was funny because um, uh, Motown was trying to get me to come out from 78 on. Uh, but uh, my life was such that I really wasn't that interested. I was married and um, uh, I preferred staying in Washington at that particular time. When that situation uh, um, changed, not because of anything other than um, something from, you know, my, my wife was taken to heaven. And as a result, I didn't want to stay in Washington anymore. Uh, so all the convincing that they'd done, they, they actually sent out, um, Junis Griffin came from Motown, met with me and the mayor, and uh, talked about me coming to uh, to, uh, uh, to work with him. Also, he came while my wife was around, and I was like, no, there's no, there's no way that I'm, you know, leave my wife to, to go on the road with you, <laughs> you know. Um, first is first. And then when that situation changed, that's when I, um, I reevaluated and um, uh, Motown sent Junis out again and we had a long, long talk. Flew me out to LA, met with a lot of people. Um, this is Motown, not Rick. Uh, because they wanted someone who could, could who uh, had some semblance of control. Nobody could control Rick. But um, uh, I was the closest, so uh, I went out. Rick and I had a long talk about me coming out, and um, you know I would learn a little bit about business, and then um, then I would take over. And within six months, I think I took over. Hmm. Didn't take long. So, what month of '81 was it, and when did the Street Songs come out? Was Street Songs out yet, or? I don't think uh, Street Songs was out because I remember being in a studio with them uh, in San Francisco and that. Um, um, I left, I think, in either late May of two, uh, 1981 or June of 81. And that's when I first started uh, talking with Motown. And uh, I went out to uh, San Francisco with Rick in LA and they were still recording uh, 
and then I made my decision, and then I I, um, I went out uh, to Los Angeles and started meeting with uh, various lawyers and various management people and the record company people. Did that whole routine, and uh, uh, then I went out with Rick. You know, went to then we started a. Uh, we actually started pre uh, pre tour production, so I was there for that. And uh, I started out working with merchandise uh, to learn a little bit about what merchandise, which was doing absolutely nothing when I got out there. Uh, took that, turned that around, and then as I was doing it, I was working with seeing what various other people were doing, and I, I took a little piece at a time, and then ultimately, uh, within six months, I was running running the show. I have something here. You mentioned merchandise. You might uh, be familiar with. You know that that looks like a bootleg shirt to me. I got it uh, at the show. Did you? So well, I remember. I, it. it, it um, can you look at the label inside? Those designs look like mine, but I don't recall that one exactly. The label is. Um, and what year did you get that? Eighty-one. It's eighty-one tour. At the uh, Los Angeles Forum. Okay. Is that shirt explosion? T-shirt explosion? <laughs> the label's faded. Um, I can't I can't make it out. But um, no, I, I was at that show and was blown away by that show. Okay. All uh, right. Well, that one, um, um, Street Songs, I believe, was 82. I'm not, I'm not, I don't think it was 81. Uh, we might have had a small tour in '81, but uh, I, I might, was, I I might have seen him also at the Long Beach Arena. Yep, we played the Long Beach Arena. Yeah, did that. Yeah, that was one of our favorites. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but the year before you came, though, I think it was the year before, maybe two years before, was the famous uh, tour he did with Prince for a little while. Yes. Um, Kind of become that. legendary over time. Uh, what was your impression of that, or what did you take away from that? Because uh, people talk about that it was kind of a feud that came out of that, and so forth. Has that been blown out of proportion, or what was your impression of that whole thing? Well, I, I, I'm hearing very uh, varying stories from what I've heard from Rick, particularly. Um, you know, I know Rick kind of liked him, but then he didn't like the fact that he was stealing parts of his show. And uh, he was a little bit disturbed about that, and I think that's why he released him. According, according to Rick. I mean, that's, uh, I wasn't there, so I don't know. Well, there was, there's been talk, too, that there was, uh, you know, the Mary Jane Girls versus Vanity Six, and that Rick had the idea first really? or whatever, and... Well, that but that that wasn't that then. I mean, the Mary Jane girls and that was eighty two, eighty three, and and so was Vanity Six. So you know, uh, I I think Vanity may have come out ahead of us, but Rick talked did too much talking about coming out with that the girl group, and they may have beat us to the punch on that. But um, uh, I think the girls were much more successful than Vanity Six was. No question about that. Yes, I mean you can you can push something out there, you can push those rockets out there, but they fail. You haven't done much. So I mean that's kind of like what happened with uh, 
Mary Jane Girls and um, and Vanity Six. And Mary Jane Girls did great with their two albums. Yes, uh, they did. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, what, what was your life like in a nutshell once you got really involved in the whole Rick James scene? Well, it was a whirlwind because, you know, I had to do, um, my job started at nine in the morning and ended at three in the morning. And the things I had to do, uh, the business things, uh, uh, were quite different than going on stage and performing. Although that was also part of making sure that that went right and that everything on the business side happened. But, um, um, it was a lot of tough work, so uh, uh, when we got a break, we took some good breaks. I took some good breaks. Um, I had maybe two or three days to uh, to relax, and sometimes we'd go. I'd go somewhere, but it was interesting because we stayed in all the top hotels and uh, partied in all the places that people talk about: Studio Fifty Four and um, the Cheetah and. Uh, um, Carlos and Charlie's in L.A., uh, uh, Tramps, all of that. I mean, uh, it was exciting, you know, to do a lot of different things uh, uh, that pe other people just couldn't do because basically couldn't get in. <laughs> you know, they, it was uh, uh, it, you know, as close to, to anybody but celebrities, you know. So, but uh, the work was, was very hard, um, and most people don't know that. They don't know what it is to go into the box office and have to deal with that scenario and uh, how you, uh, in pre-tour, what is done in pre-tour and all the dynamics of uh, keeping 70 wild people in line. Um, and that's what I had to do. 70 crazy individuals, not just one, Rick James, 70 of them. Uh, I don't think there was one stable out the whole group. Um, <laughs> So I mean, it was a it was a learning experience. It was a learning experience. Did you ever think, Good Lord, what did I get myself into? I didn't even have time to think. <laughs> so I, I, I didn't I didn't think about anything. I, you know, I it, I was too busy going from putting one fire out to the next. Uh, we were basically sued almost in every city uh, and run out of half of them. Um, Police were waiting on us in every city because, you know, Rick would you know, smoke weed on stage. And so I had to deal with that, that complication, um, and, and usually run out of town, that, that, that sort of thing, and, and get paid by, uh, by uh, uh, promoters. And, 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 and promoters are not the easiest people to deal with, you know. Uh, they, uh, they don't even care if it's sold out. They're going to still try to beat you. So, you know, you, you had to be on your toes for that. And you had to be on your toes for bootleggers. And um, um, at the same time, I'm, I'm running the, the girls and, and trying to do promotion when we hit those towns um, uh, for future things. So it wasn't an easy job. But uh, after a while, it became pretty, uh, pretty standard. And, and uh, I understood what I had to do. And we did it in every venue. And as a result, some of the things that we did, like, for instance, with merchandise, um, I made sure that uh, 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 if I didn't sell all my merchandise, I'd make sure all the boys' clubs in that would get T-shirts. And those were marketing for the next show. So I would leave a 1,000 sh shirts in almost every market. 
um, and those were our what we call our lost leaders. But you got you still have one, and I walked in with one recently in Los Angeles. He paid three hundred dollars for it on uh, <laughs> on on um, on eBay. Amazon, oh. yeah, eBay or one of those. And I was like, you know, I, I wish I could have sold them for three hundred a piece back then. Yeah. But um, when you do something quality, it lasts. So, and I think that most of what we did was quality. Did did the fact that you were Rick's brother um, help or hinder when you needed to get things in order? I mean, because I would think I obviously have the relationship, but then maybe sometimes would he sort of like say, eh, "Leroy, you know." Yeah, I mean, it, it, it a little bit of both, but uh, I like to remind people that uh, you know there's a Georgetown side of me. The other side of me was from projects. So the question is, which one did you want to deal with? You want to deal with the project? You don't want to really want to deal with the project side of me. Uh, you want to deal with the Georgetown? You don't want to deal with that side either. So for the most part, once you understood who I was, I had no problem. That was with band members, with drug dealers, with the rest of them. Um, because I, with the band members, for instance, you know, I, I made them an offer that they couldn't refuse. <laughs> well, Street Songs, what a masterpiece that was, was Super Freak and Give It To Me Baby and Get A Life and Fire and Desire and just from beginning to end, just such a great work. I think it commercially did the best, but I think also it was, to me, from end to end, his most consistently great record. Um, I don't know how you feel about that, but... Did, did you kind of have a sense of that at the time, even before it blew up, that this thing was really loaded? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, when I heard that album, I, I said, really, we, we really have something. And we prepared our tour like that, that the, for, some, for having a monster album. Um, there were some concerns about street songs. I mean, Rick didn't really want street songs on the album. Uh, because he thought it was too techno, and I was like, you know, you got to have that song on the album. Uh, and it wasn't the single that was released. One of the DJs, I think, in California somewhere, picked it up and started playing it. Uh, so Street Songs was strong, and the rest of them, I mean, Street Songs was was a monster. But uh, everything else was carrying the album. I think it stayed, uh, we stayed number one, at least on R and B charts, for 52 straight weeks. So, I mean, we did well. Uh, but, um, you know, I mean, I, I always felt as though that was his strongest, his strongest album. And, and, but it was a little different than the first three. The first three were more streety, in my view. They were more, um, uh, they were more funky and um, uh, more daring and um, uh, different, a lot different than everything else that was out there. And he, that, that uh, street songs was different, also, but it was a more it was more commercial, more polished. And when I saw his show, I mean, it was two hours of kick ass, you know. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. And, and he was a great charismatic force on stage. Oh yeah, that I mean, and that a lot of that he got from Canada, from uh, 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 performing with the rockers. A lot of that is rock that he was doing. A lot of that. Uh, I mean, his show with the guitar players and the rest, um, um, a lot of that had to do with some of the shows we used to see uh, 
back in the early 60s uh, that used to come through this place called the Pine Grill. And they had these big shows with these big bands. Um, uh, people, a lot of people you really never even heard of. Uh, but they would have like three and four horn players and uh, 15, 20 people on stage. Uh, and I, I think that that had a lot of influence on Rick to get that big sound. You needed certain people out there. And you needed some good players. You needed a good horn player, a good horn section, and good guitars. He had two guitar players, two keyboard players, you know, three background singers, a uh, uh, powerful drummer. You know, I mean, he had a, a, a big band. We, we had a lot of people on stage and a lot of mouths to feed. That, that required a lot of support. So we had a lot of um, technical people with us. Uh, we we tried to to have good staging and the rest. How much did Rick keep his eye on the charts and uh, for himself, and also uh, those of you know other players and performers? Maybe he saw as rivals or or always. He always kept his eyes on the charts, and always he wanted to. Uh, he walked around Motown. And, you know, they had a room where the guys would keep the charts and see where everybody was. And um, um, Rick knew what he needed to have done. He knew that, okay, you need to put more marketing, more promotion into a certain area. I, I mean, I mentioned that earlier, that in, in this particular city, you need to, you know, we, we um, uh, either Prince or the Gap Band may be doing a little bit stronger than us there. You need to get out there and market. You know, I mean, we're going to do our part because when we hit the tour, that's the greatest marketing that there is, you know, and nobody for the years that we were out there could touch us in that. Uh, but when he looked at the charts and he would see somebody, the, uh, the main group that he was interested in back in those days was the Gap Band. Mm -hmm. Only letter was Prince. Prince came along maybe 83, 84, started hitting. Michael started doing the same. Um, I mean, but we all, we all we all partied together. You know, we were all at um, at uh, Carlos and Charlie's together, El Provado. You know, you know, we were all at Studio Fifty Four together. So, you know, it, um, the charts were very important. So Rick paid a lot of attention. He wanted to see the charts. So, you know, we got the charts and we looked at it, and we we looked at uh, uh, the radio play sales. And we looked at uh, uh, how much Motown was putting into it. See, um, and in and, and some of those early years, Rick was big because of the record, and they didn't have to put that money in there. And the other companies are putting that money out there to keep that record out there uh, and, and to push it. So, uh, and Rick knew that. So, and, and we had that built into our contract after, in the, after 82 that, you know, you had to. You know, you had to put this kind of money into these things. You, you had to do video and the rest. So, yes, yes, he did look at um, the charts. He's very familiar with the charts. I mean, I learned a lot about the charts from from dealing with Rick and going from um, uh, office to office in Motown and finding out who was doing their job and who wasn't. Of course, it was very different back then. They uh, with, with the charts, there were several different charts and um, sales were whole different ball game and charting from the oh, way yeah. it is today. Oh, yeah. um, but I sensed that Rick was very competitive. Right. Oh, yeah. 
he knew what it took to stay where he was, um, and he knew that the record companies had to put, had, had you know, they had to put money into this. I mean, you don't just take money out; you have to put money in to keep this thing rolling. You know, and that meant that um, on the one stops and that you had to buy um, stand ups and uh, you you know you. You had to put a number of records in in these shops. Uh, I mean, all that goes into it, you know. You uh, and you look at all of that. You say, you, you say, how many records are out in Detroit? How many records are in Chicago? How many records are in New York? Uh, um, and how many records are international? I mean, we did the whole thing, you know, and we'd look at every region and see what we were doing. And a lot of that had uh, also, you know, you look at that to determine where and what you were going to do on tour. What were your sales like here? What were your sales like there? You know, what were you charting? Um, and what could we do if we either went in and did promotion or we played there? So uh, he was very familiar with all of that uh, and paid a lot of attention to it. And when Street Songs made him more of an international star too, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, the thing is, you know, uh, Rick didn't want to do international touring. He, he always felt that the money, the money was in the United States, which was true. The short-term money is in the United States. The long-term money is overseas because they seem to, they, they stick with you uh, for longer uh, in the European markets and in the foreign markets. So when he was, you know, skyrocketed uh, to, to success and fame how did he still find time with all the partying i assume he was doing uh to still be so productive i mean because in the early 80s you know i think he was really burning the candle with both ends but he was still so productive well i mean he did what he had to do and he knew what he had to do i think um, rick overworked himself with all the acts i mean he had too many acts and he was the only one that was really doing the production so he had the do-rags, and, and he had um, uh, the Mary Jane girls, and he did a little work with Process. I mean, not with Process, Val Young, but then he's doing work with the, the Temptations, and, and he's doing work with Donny Osmond. He's doing work with Eddie Murphy. You know, uh, he's doing something with Smokey Robinson. He's doing that. I mean, that was too much. Just too much. And I used to tell him, that, I said, uh, keep that music for yourself. You know, keep it all yourself. You know, uh, now that we got the girls going a little bit, let's get somebody else, some other producers in, but just never will do it. Why, why do you think he wanted to spread himself out that much? Well, he, he had some things that were firmly in his mind that he wanted to do. He wanted a boys group, he wanted a girls group, and he wanted to create a black Marilyn Monroe. Those were, those were things that were in his mind. But at the same time, when he would start on something, he might say that, oh, boy, this might work with the temps. Or, or if somebody came around, they, they, there was always somebody coming around and say, do a song for me. And Rick was a good-hearted guy, so you get him around and, you know, okay, you know, I'll do a song. I'll do that for him. That song turns out to be a hit. That song should have been on Rick's album, not on their album. Well, I had, you know, uh, a while back, a couple of years now, I had the Hughes Brothers on this show. And um, they, they talked about how Rick was so gifted, you know, that songs would just kind of like come into his head. Um, can you speak to that at all? It's, it's, it's very true. I mean, Rick, uh, 
I watched Rick write a song telling someone that how easy it was to write a song. And just hum these, this section. And then he would play it on the keyboard. And then he'd ask one of the band members. He did it all the time on the road. All the time on the road. I got this idea. Uh, I'll play this part. Now bass player played this part. Now guitar player played this part. And the song was coming. And he would hum some something. And then uh, change that humming into uh, into words. Uh, for him, if you're gifted, you can you can do it. <laughs> you know. Uh, for other people, I mean, it's hard to write a hit. You, know, you have a lot of one-hit people. You have a lot of two-hit people. Uh, you have a lot of three-hit people. But they only have one hit in life, two hits in life, three hits in life. Because a lot of hits. Uh, so you're a hit maker. So you, you, you have that formula, but you also, not only do you have to have the formula, but you have to have that connection with the people, because the people really determine whether your song is going to be a hit. You have to have a connection, a feeling of what these people out here are looking for. And that's what, what Rick had. Rick had that connection, that feel, where he could put down something and put a feel. And it wasn't like he wasn't listening to other people's stuff because he did. And it wasn't like he was stealing anybody. But you, you can listen and get a feel, and then you can do your own thing. And I think it inspires you to do that. It inspires you to, because uh, uh, you're going to hear it anyway. You know, you're going to hear Michael, you're going to hear Prince, and all the rest. You're not going to copy him because it'd be obvious. I'm Rick James. You know, I have my own thing. But when you hear somebody else, it says, "Okay, I'm going to go in the studio. I'm going to write something." Do well, no question. I mean, he, he, he had a completely identifiable sound between the music and especially his voice and singing. Um, not like, you know, the Barquets, say, copying sounds. Um, but, um, you know, you mentioned The Temptations and Throwing Down was the follow-up to uh, Street Songs and also did almost as well, but not quite. And um, Standing on the Top, Another one of my very favorite Rick James tracks, especially the extended version that was not on the album, unfortunately. I think it went on the Temptations album. Right. Um, were you uh, able to meet those guys? And were you part of that? Did you go to the session? I was or? there. I was at the sessions, yes. What was yes. that like? Well, by that time, the Temptations were history. <laughs> you know, And Rick's idea was to bring them back. Uh, and it was interesting to, to hear the Temptations because I grew up on the Temptations, we are, you know, and uh, to have them come back and to to reunite, they would, they were going to reunite, but this, I think, this song really uh, became a million seller for them, standing on the top. So, and the video and the rest, but um, it was interesting because Barry Gordy came into the studio and Smokey and the rest, you know, they all came in and um, uh, they were all excited for the Temps. And Rick, and and that's something that um, I mean, and that firmly placed Rick in the Motown family to do something with Smokey, to do something with um, uh, the Temps. Uh, I mean, that it's very difficult. Either, you know, most people don't think of Rick as being part of the Motown family. I mean, they they think of Rick and they just think Rick, but they and they don't know what company he was with. But Motown is a very close-knit family of um, artists who um, were there pre-Rick. 
Rick is the, the artist that kept uh, Motown alive for that period from 78 through uh, 85, just before they sold it to, I, I guess, uh, BMI or Universal. Did, did Motown, uh, in your opinion, pressure Rick to try to replicate the street song's success, or was he pressing himself to do that even with like... Yeah, they, had, man, they had no control over Rick. Um, they always wanted the best that uh, Rick could do, but sometimes Rick's view was, you know, I gave you all these hits, you know, y'all can wait, start write something else. I think with, with uh, Garden of Love, he just gave him what he wanted to. You know, he knew that he should be coming with the funk, but he gave him the Garden of Love these ballads and that, um, um, and, and that was, um, that was Rick, you know, I mean, Rick, Rick said, you know, I want you to want me more, so he would give him something, I'm not going to give you hit after hit after hit, just because you want it, you know, I'm going to give you what I feel like giving you as an artist, and if I want to veer away from something, I'm going to do it, I'm going I'm to give you what I feel like giving you. And he had... I don't know, it must be at least a dozen, if not more, under his name, uh, major, you know, uh, R&B hits. A couple of crossed over, you and I, and Super Freak. Did he feel like he thought more should have crossed over? Did he care about that crossover? Or was yeah, he... I mean, he, that's, that's, why, that's why he was in the business. I mean, Rick was really in the business. Rick wanted to be a crossover artist. It didn't happen for him uh, with the Minor Birds and that. Uh, uh, so his idea was maybe I'll cross over with Motown with a crossover R&B type feel. Uh, Sly had done it. Uh, some, I guess Sly and, and Jimi Hendrix were the only two really had done it. Stevie um, Wonder? Well, uh, Stevie, although he was crossing over, Stevie was still Motown. You know, I mean, you can look at Motown and put them in a whole different category. Motown and um, early Michael Jackson, and when Michael got with uh, with uh, CBS, I mean, it's complete crossover. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, he crossed over so far that the other people who, uh, <laughs> you know, they had to try to catch up with him. You know, I mean, Michael was um, just in a whole other um, another world. But yeah, he did um, uh, he did want to cross over more. Um, but not he not to compromise his sound to to, to cross over, you know. And he and he did. We did. I mean, a lot of our our concerts were fifty fifty, mm -hmm. and in some some venues it was eighty percent crossover. I mean, we played in a lot of places, Saginaw and uh, Albuquerque, and and a lot of um, uh, mid areas, uh, Tacoma and. Um, um, San Bernardino and that that were all totally crossover. The whole California market was kept crossover. You know, um, I think in live definitely he crossed over big time with all of yeah. it. But uh, radio, though, uh, you know, didn't jump on some of the other tracks as much yeah. as you know. Well, I mean, but Rick opened the doors for um, uh, the crossover audience that wasn't there before. I mean, to have one or two acts cross over, that's nothing. It's nothing. You know, uh, Rick was one of the ones who helped to open the doors for um, 
a lot of uh, black acts, uh, particularly with what he did with uh, MTD. Uh, if if Rick had Rick, what he did for MTV was to force them to break those barriers that they had by playing nothing but rock acts and maybe one or two blacks uh, to open it up to other acts. And it actually was to, to their benefit because they profited by that, but we never did. They, they, they began playing rappers, they become playing a lot of the other R&B acts, and really the whole um, entertainment world start opening up because you know I mean everybody don't want to just hear just rock and roll you know they want to hear they want to hear all kinds of music and uh, I, I guess you remember what uh, when Rick uh, went on Nightline with uh, MTV and um, contested the whole video thing because there was no outlet for for uh, black acts if if MTV wasn't going to play the videos yeah I don't think if, BET had quite Started doing that yet? A BT wasn't around really yeah. to do to do anything. So uh, it was MTV, and as a result of MTV, uh, that fight MTV formed VH1, which was a great success. And because of VH1 success, then uh, MTV changed their format. But as a result of all of that, uh, we got no benefit out of that. Prince and Michael Jackson and, and so many other acts got all the benefit. We never got any benefit. I don't think Rick was ever played on MTV. Yeah. They pissed me off to no end back then. I mean, I thought it was I thought it was flat out racist when they first started and they had that policy, but Well Rick uh, Rick called it out. Called yeah. it out as racist. Now you explain to me why, you know, the reason why you are what you are because you want to play just rock and ro you, you want to play rock groups. That's it. You know. I think they were they were hiding behind that, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah, I mean, it's like I want to just have Methodist preachers. That's all in my group, <laughs> you know. So that means you don't want to deal with anybody else. That uh, that doesn't fly. It didn't fly then. It doesn't fly now. Hit me, yeah. Y'all better take some insurance out on your booty tonight. Cause we are not responsible. Ain't it fucking that? Yeah.